hello, and welcome to the Learning to See podcast. I'm Jen Allward, your host, and today I get to introduce you to Sparrow. This is part one of a two-part series about how she made it through a really dark season of her life and found hope, healing, and joy again. Today she shares about her time to leave, but she begins by talking about how this season of her life helped her recognize a deep sadness in others and enabled her to bring them healing through art. Not every story is easy to hear, and I'll interrupt in a few spots with this one to let you know when potentially sensitive topics are approaching. I share her story because it has been redeemed, and the answers, healing, and hope she has found can be yours as well. In today's show notes, you'll find the timestamps of these warnings and more ways to connect with Sparrow. But to get the bonus content, glimpses of her art, and our full discussion, jump on over to Patreon and join our Learning to See Studio membership. Make sure to join at the Digging Deeper Together level to get the full write-ups from conversations with artists, art therapists, and art ministers like Sparrow. Well, without further ado, I'm so glad you're here. Let's get started and learn to see together. Well, hello and welcome, Sparrow. Hi, Jen. Can you introduce yourself a little bit to those who are listening and watching? So my name is Sparrow Danitz. I live in Meridian, Idaho. We've lived here about four years, moved here from California. I've lived in a lot of other places too. I'm number eight of 11 children. That's um, a full house. Mm-hmm. And uh, it wasn't until I moved to Idaho that I knew I was an artist. I mean, I knew I could write and stuff, but um, I'll tell you more about the story as we go. So <laughs> I'm excited because that's our feature today is your story and you have art to go yeah. with it. So that's exciting. Yeah. And how did you get into, well, that's probably part of your story is how you realized you could paint. I was always a writer. My first experience with visual arts was through a paint and sip with my sister in California. I started going to Vineyard Boise and Jesse Nilo had started the Vine Arts Ministry there. And she was one of the first people I connected with. I told her I can't even draw a stick figure. There's a whole lot more to the story, but my first experience of recognizing myself as an artist was through fine arts. Excellent. And then what do you do? I'm retired. I do art ministry. I didn't know I had been doing it all along before I ever got connected to Jessie and, you know, learning new techniques and honing in my skills through taking her foundations of art course and stuff. So the way I started out doing art ministry I used to go on a monthly basis to Ensenada, Mexico, to a very, very poor village, a colony that was built at first close to the prison because so many of the women have men in prison and they wanted to be closer, Mm -hmm. really crime-ridden, really poor and all that. The very first time I went with that team, it's usually geared towards like a Sunday school type situation for the kids, right? Sure. And I just noticed this deep, deep, deep sadness in the women's eyes. Mm. And I recognize that sadness because that's how mine used to look. I'll tell that story through my paintings. So the next time I came and we went once a month, I brought a very inexpensive, very easy craft that anybody could do. And they had so, so much fun. Pretty soon I was doing it every now and then. Then pretty soon it was, you know, just like a change of season or a holiday. And then pretty soon it just became a full-on ministry. When I first started doing it, there was maybe five, six women By the time I left there several years later, when I moved away, there was about 25 women coming every time. Wow. So because I was doing it on a regular basis, Pinterest became my best friend. YouTube became my best friend. 
self-taught through those venues how to do a lot of different things. And that's when I started doing scripture-based mixed medium. Scrapbooking is one of my biggest loves that I first started doing visually before I you know, considered it an art. And so I even helped them do their own. I just did everything and like it gets really hot over there. So for Mother's Day, I bought a bunch of straw hats and fake flowers and ribbons and just anything to make them feel happy. And a lot of them, gosh, they, they're just natural born artists, you know? They take recycled stuff, junk that's where they're living. Isn't that a powerful like thought and message of we can take junk and we can make it beautiful? Yeah. So I brought that with me to Idaho and then I connect with Jesse and realized, gosh, even with the kids at a youth center that I used to volunteer out there in San Diego, I'd been doing it all along. <laughs> and some it of those kept teams, growing and then you had an like official... Yeah, I didn't didn't call it anything. I just did it because it was fun, you know? And um, so a lot of those teens that I uh, mentored and stuff through a teen center are, we're still friends. They're like in their twenties and stuff now, you know, and getting married, all kinds of stuff. So yeah, it really built some deep connections. I think we forget how much it doesn't have to sound serious. It doesn't have to be super formatted to, to get together and play with our supplies and talk about scripture. Like, that is ministry. That is healing work. Yeah. Even yeah. if it doesn't have an official title. I know. I was art minister before I knew it. <laughs> I just to give them something to look forward to and sometimes dig deeper, sometimes not. Like you say, sometimes you're just having fun because it's a holiday and you want to paint Halloween stuff, you know, whatever. Yeah. So. Celebrate the people that are there and be with yeah. them in the moment. I love yeah. that your theme for today, and I know that you have a story to tell. We're going to jump into that really quick, but yeah. a time for every season. Yes. And these seasons, you know, you talked briefly about your sister. Most people would dread that season. They resist and fight that season. But once you are in it, you're like, there's so many blessings yeah. in this season. And that's why I do want to write that story and that and take care of my mom and then my daughter-in-law that died of cancer and things like that. Because you can look at it as a burden or a blessing. And if you look at it as a blessing, whether you believe in God or not, if you look at it as a privilege and a blessing, you look for the positive attitude in every situation. It makes it easier and you just feel like blessed that God chose you to be a part of it. Wow. Perspective. Anything else you want to say before you jump into sharing your story and your art? We're not always in a Christian atmosphere. So I'm real cognizant of that, especially if you're working at a facility that's funded by the government. You're not supposed to talk about God and everything. So -hmm. there's also that song, the birds sing it. Turn, turn, turn. Do you remember that song? To everything there is a season? Yes. So what I'm going to do today is there's three pieces of art that I created based on Ecclesiastes 3-4. A time to weep, a time to seek, and a time to dance. Mm. So that's where I'm going to start. My childhood was happy. I'm the younger half of like two generations. Growing up, happy, wild. Feet hit the ground, out the door. Little girl didn't care about the grown-up world wasn't concerned with it. Grew up in a Mexican family. We're Mexican and Indian. And um, my mom was beautiful. My father was handsome. My father was a musician. My mom took really good care of us. Not a care in the world. Nothing. It was fabulous and always playmates and, you know, your natural playmates. So that remained until, hmm, let's see, in fourth grade, I got put into parochial school and that was all good too. But as an adolescent, The first most traumatic one, there's two traumatic events I'm going to tell you about. 
As you just heard Sparrow say, she's starting her story now, and there are two traumatic events. The first one is divorce. There are some things included here, such as domestic violence, drugs and alcohol, corporal punishment. Nothing specific is detailed. I just wanted to give you a heads up that it's coming. So happy, happy, happy little girl. Get to the age about 12. My parents are getting in a huge fight. Next thing you know, they're getting a divorce. Mm. Now, there are stories I know that this was going on all the time, but I didn't know it as a little girl. You don't pay attention to grown-up stuff. So we were brokenhearted. My sisters and I, there was five of us younger ones, and um, there was this song that Cher sang, and it was all about, you better sit down, kids. I've got something to say. Your mother is staying, and I'm going away. And so it's this dad telling his kids that they're getting a divorce. We sat there and cried and cried and cried and cried. So adolescence is kind of a hard time. You're kind of on the cusp anyway of still being a little girl, but trying to figure out these new things you're hearing and learning and stuff. So that was really hard. My parents were really strict. My dad, um, I won't tell all the gory details, but became very violent. And I know now he was violent throughout their marriage, but I just never saw it. But he was um, not going to let my mom raise his kids without him because he knew that she wouldn't be strong enough and you know keep us in line and all that kind of stuff. So we had to go into hiding a couple of times. You hear about those stories where a man kills his entire family because they're losing control of it. He'd yeah. rather everybody be dead. So we had to go into hiding a couple of times from, from that. So all that big turmoil was going on. Add to that, my mother was very young when they got married and she had children. And she went way off the deep end. I had this beautiful mom that didn't drink, didn't smoke, didn't even wear pants, even wore house dresses when she cleaned the house. Okay. All of a sudden, here she is wearing a wig, smoking cigarettes, going out to bars with my ex-sister-in-law, wearing the little shorts, back then were really short, and white go-go boots. This was my mom. This was a different person. Yeah, my dad was a crazy person I didn't recognize, who I before was my prince. Um, so that was going on. We had to go into hiding. Uh, there was an event where my brother-in-law, my dad had a really thriving business. He was an excellent provider and a complicated man because I loved him to death, but then I hated him, you know? Mm. So my brother-in-law called and uh, he said, you guys better get out of there. He's coming with a gun. So for whatever reason, my sister Pat and I were home on that day my dad came in, he didn't pull out a gun or anything, but he threw my mother against the refrigerator and started to choke her. So we saw this. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. So I'm growing up in Southern California. I'm 12, 13, 14 years old. All all this is going on. I had older brothers and sisters. I was exposed to way too many things at such a young age. The, The older kids forgot how young I was. Oh, sure. It was a drug culture smoking marijuana, drinking and all that. And, you know, and it didn't matter. You were a straight A student and I was a good student at school. I loved school. It didn't matter. Whereas before, um, the lines were clearer on who who you could hang out with and who you couldn't. Mm-hmm. I also have sisters. I have a sister that's three years older than me. And she would take me with her because she knew my mom would let her go if I was with her. You see what I'm saying? So I got exposed to things I had no business being exposed to and being taken advantage of. Mm -hmm. So all that happens. And I was, oh, I forgot to backtrack a little bit. I was born wild. Obedience was not in my vocabulary. 
Not that I was a rebel. I just always was very impulsive. If something looked fun, I went for it. I didn't think of consequences. I didn't think normal kids would say, well, I better not. My mom's going to spank me or whatever. We survived all the beatings. You know, I mean, by today's standards, I am not emotionally scarred by the, the way we got punished, but I can guarantee you by today's standards, we would have been removed from the home. It only hurt physically, okay, <laughs> to me. And it's not like I didn't deserve all but one of those, you know. Well, it kind of backfired too, though, and I'll tell you why in a minute. So yeah. um, I would wear shorts. My legs would be all black and blue, and I wanted people to feel sorry for me. they go, what happened to your legs? My mom with, you know, she used to whip us with a rubber hose. Well, so my mom, you know, well, what'd you do? They didn't feel sorry for me. They go, well, what did you do? Oh, a sign of the times. <laughs> that didn't work. So anyway, so I had a lot of free time, unsupervised. Um, we pretty much were raising ourselves on our own. Dad didn't stay in the picture much. He came to visit us a couple of times and my dad had a lot of money and he found a way to not give my mom money. So everything changed in our life. So um, I was wild anyway, and everybody in, in that neighborhood hitchhiked to the beach or wherever, Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood, all those things, right? So my best friend, Kathy, and I, we went hitchhiking, and we went to Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood, and we were coming home and ran into some people that we knew, went to their party, and uh, this is where I say it backfired because if I was a half hour late coming home, or three hours late, I got the same beating. So in my sick mind, I'm like, well, I'm late now. I might as well stay, right? Absolutely. So we ended up, end up spending the night at that house. And they were going to give us a ride home the next day. Oh, well, yeah, I forgot to show you this. Okay, so I, I got back up a little bit. When my parents got the divorce, that was when the time to weep started. For those who might just be listening, the black and white photo, butterfly, a clock, a flower, and then the words, a time to weep. And it's very much yeah, black and, and white. actually a picture of me. And there's a teardrop if you can't see it. I'm going to back up and then I'll tell you how I came with that picture. So I'm back to coming home from that party and they were taking us home. And all of a sudden they stop at like a convenience store. You know, oh, we got to get some cigarettes. And... Now, looking back, I know what really happened, but what they said, I saw them, you know, talking to some guys, and I'm going to call him Dennis. I believe that was the guy's name. He says, oh, I forgot I have this appointment or a court thing or whatever, mm -hmm. so our friends are going to take you home, okay? So, Jen, I can tell you now that looking back, there was an exchange of money with them. I figured they were getting money for cigarettes or selling drugs or whatever. I didn't think anything. Yeah. I'm 14. Kathy was 16. They had a two-door old car, like one of those old 1940s cars with just two doors. And we're in the back and these older guys, to me, now you forget, I'm 14. So if they could have been 18 and they were ancient to me, you know, right. they're probably 30s, whatever. They were old. Yeah. So we're in the back and they're going, oh, you girls. And we weren't that far from my house, Jen. We were not. I knew exactly where I was. We were right by, right by the rival high school. Mm -hmm. So they're like trying to talk us into going to this party. We're like, no, no, no. We want to go home. We got to get home. We got to get home. If you haven't caught the foreshadowing yet, Sparrow is about to tell us about the second trauma in her story. This involves human trafficking, violence, sexual content, and police interaction, as well as victim blaming. Well, stupid me. I was naive. I'm like, you know, they started saying stuff and I'm like, hey, you might as well just take us home because we're both virgins. Well, now I know better. I would never say that again. 
Okay. But you were only 14. I was 14. What the heck did I know, you know? And so they take us to this neighborhood known as the one ways because all the streets were one way and it was not a good neighborhood. It was not a good neighborhood. And they get us out of the car and they take us to this front door and the door opens and Jennifer, I was like freaked out. It's like all these biker men were in there. Whoa. And there was this one guy, there's two names that I remember. One was at the sitting closest to the door and he goes, Oh, you want some whiskey? We're like, no, no, no. We want to go home. We want to go home. And um, his name was RC because he liked RC Cola. That was a Coca-Cola from back then. This was uh -huh. in 1969, by the way. So we're looking around scared to death. Well, then I saw a woman and I thought, oh gosh, I felt safe. Cause to me, moms take care of kids, right? No matter whose kids they are. Right. Of course. That's yeah. what I thought. Okay. So as the time goes on and we're trying not to drink or take anything, although they're shoving some whiskey in my mouth and all that kind of stuff, the lady takes us to this room and started showing us sexual things that she wanted us to do to her boyfriend because she wasn't in the mood. Now, neither one of us were sexually active. We're 14 and 16 years old and raised in the Catholic school. I was going to stay that way till I got married. Um, I can't remember why we were in the front room, but there was a bunch of people standing around. And let me show you if you can see this. Um, when I'm scared, this is me. <gasps> uh huh. Don't blink, don't breathe, don't move. Maybe you'll become invisible, right? Right. So freeze. Standing, so freeze, camouflage, blend in. Yeah. I'm searching for Kathy and our eyes locked. And right at that very moment, we knew exactly what was going to happen. We knew it without a doubt. Mm -hmm. We just had our eyes were just like, oh my gosh. So then we started taking anything they gave us, drinking anything they gave us because we didn't want to live through that. I think that's why I'm not completely flipped out as a person because I wasn't conscious through most of it. The next day, I feel somebody pulling my foot off of a bed. I had no clothes on and my area was on, was so painful so so painful so this man's dragging me out and he goes oh time for some more fun well this is the reason i remember another name there was a guy they called him rico because he was puerto rican and he was a big guy and he said leave her alone they've had enough that's enough that's enough and so i i, go, I got it. i ran and i locked myself in the bathroom and they broke out in a fight and i guess rico pulled a knife and so then i was left alone from that other guy and Rico said, you can come out now. And I was able to put some clothes on. And I didn't know where Kathy was. I'm like, where's Kathy? Where's Kathy? I hear this big ruckus outside. Okay, so you saw how I act when I'm scared. I don't move. I don't breathe. I don't talk. I yeah. wasn't saying anything at that time anymore. So Kathy, on the other hand, was fighting mad. So I'm like, I'm only five foot tall now. So back then I was about 4'11 or something. So I'm mm -hmm. tiny and I probably weighed about 100 pounds, you know, 105, because I used to think I was fat if I weighed more than 105. So they dragged Kathy in and she was all beat up because she was mouthing off to him. Mm -hmm. She was ticked off. So they beat her up and they said, you're going to leave here. But if you call and tell the cops where they are, we know where you girls live. and We're going to burn your houses down with everybody in it. We didn't have a reason not to believe them because one, the guys that sold this to them knew where we lived. They were so-called friends of my older sister. Okay. Yeah. Two, we weren't that far from our house. 
my mom shopped at the market down the street. Mm -hmm. So they made her leave. I don't know if she was going to get me saved or what. In the meantime, Rico took me to another house. I'm thinking, oh, good. Well, there was no more sexual uh, attacks or anything, but I became like a little slave. There was a, there was a, a couple there. And again, a mom with two kids. I had to clean and cook and all that, but there was no more other stuff. But I still could barely walk. They would take me to stores and make me steal things. And I would try to get caught so I could get rescued. So I don't remember the exact amount of days. It wasn't like months or anything like that, but I heard them talking. And so this is just to show you sex trafficking was going on way back then because I heard them saying they were going to get me a fake ID. They were going to, you know, make it look like I was 18, 19 years old. I was 14 and looked 12 or 10. You know what I mean? Yeah. Other than starting them developing, you know, um, my face and all that, I looked really younger, younger than I was. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately that was one of the alluring things to them you know young girls absolutely so i heard them they were going to ship me out to another state so um at this other house which wasn't that far from the first house i was sleeping on the couch and it was late at night and i hear bang 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 on the glass windows and flashlights shining in and my first thought was oh no they're back well it was the police after however many days she finally called her dad and told them and she knew exactly where I was and she was able to lead the police there. So they come in and you know, victim blaming still makes me mad. I'm 14 years old. Here's all these guys and they're like, oh, you like this one, don't you? You know, it's like, oh. So anyways, take me into protective custody, call my parents. My dad, you have to realize he reacts with anger when things happen. And at the time, so I was real honest. Hey, I had been at a party. I had been drinking. This is what happened. This is what happened. This is what, I didn't lie about any of my part of it. They let me out to my parents because I wrote everything honestly on the paper. Yeah. Dad comes up and bam, with his fist. This is all your fault. My fault because I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. So there was this little old man there. To me, he was old. I don't know. <laughs> And he goes, I don't know what 25. She yeah, I know. He was probably 25. Yeah, ancient. I don't know what she did. He shouldn't have done that to her. He wanted to fight my dad. My brother, one of my brothers there, he's pulling the two men apart and all this kind of stuff. Wow. So they finally released me to my parents. My mom gets me to the hospital and they said, you know, she, she's as if she just had a child. That's how my how I look down there, all torn up and Oh, oh, fortunately, wow. no diseases, no pregnancy, none of that. So my mom takes me to see the DA to decide if they can press charges or not. And he pretty much convinced her that because I could only identify a few of them and I couldn't really tell which ones had or had not done anything to me. Oh, no. Um, that chances are he goes and do you want to put her up there because everything's going to come out that she had been drinking that she had been doing this and doing that and hitchhiking and basically he goes they're going to make it look like it was her fault that she asked for it my mom said no she says i'm i'm not going to make her go through that and so um kathy's parents were ticked off about that because i wasn't going to testify to anything and they moved away and i never heard from her again i've always wondered what happened to her in yeah. the meantime, back then, you didn't go to therapy. You didn't get help. You just acted like it never happened. 
Mm-hmm. So I wasn't even allowed to call my best friend. You know, she's about a year older than me and talk to her. And, and uh, if anybody mentioned, I would just break out in tears and that's how I lived. And so for the next 15 years, that's why I'm going to bring this picture again. If you look, yeah. I have a lot of makeup on. You see mm-hmm. the eyes? Yes. See all the makeup? Yep. Okay. Do the eyes look sad to you? They, they're very sad and hollow. That's why I picked that picture because I know exactly what outfit I'm wearing in that picture. Yeah. And I worked in an office. I was high-functioning drug addict by the time I was 15. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I still went to school, got my job, got married, blah, 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 blah. That picture, I was dressed to the T. you know yeah everything matched the shoes the clothes the makeup and all that and that's when I used to curl my hair because I wanted curly hair like my sisters I'm the only one with straight hair now I love it so I used that particular picture because if you saw me I looked like I knew what I was doing yeah I was dressed nice I worked in a professional office I got promotions and raises even though I was really strong out on drugs and a lot of drinking and stuff um, I unfortunately got married during that period and had my son during that period and got a divorce during that period. So I say my son's a good man, not because of me, but in spite of me, <laughs> you know, because of God. Although I was a good mom in a lot of ways, I wasn't in a lot of other ways. So that was my time to weep. Yeah. So All those that, that was a lot of years of feeling that way. And even if you didn't look at, even if they couldn't tell it, yeah, there's a message. Well, and that's what I think, you know, I hid behind the um, alcohol and drugs to help me not feel the pain of all that, not ever dealing with it, not even giving a voice to it or um, saying how it made me feel. And I'll share with that later how some of that, even though I've gone through therapy and stuff, there's certain things that can trigger me, you know? Sure. And so, yeah. So that's my, that was my time to weep from the yeah. time my parents got a divorce until I was 30. Okay. Yeah. In 30, I had an experience that I had a foreboding. I know now it was God. At the time, I didn't know who God was or what he was about or if he even knew me. But I I was going to go out drinking again. And there was a big foreboding, which I won't go into great detail. But he showed me that I needed to make a change or else. I knew something horrible was going to happen if I went to the bar that night. Either I was going to drunk drive and hurt somebody or I was going to get hurt because I put myself in bad situations. I ended up having this little argument in my head, almost like two little gremlins on a shoulder like this one saying, go to a 12-step meeting. I don't want to go by myself. You're going to the bar by yourself. And there was like this little argument and I listened to the other voice and went to a 12-step meeting. That was the beginning, the beginning of who I am today. (laughs) Wow. Sparrow's journey has definitely had its ups and downs, and a lot of downs were experienced in that season of her life. I really appreciate her willingness to be vulnerable and share. I appreciate your willingness to listen. I hope that you found some encouragement that even though that was a really dark period of her life, that is not where her story ends. Tune in next time for part two of her story that goes through her time of seeking and ends where she is now in a time to dance. The joy and freedom of her childhood is back, and she has a new perspective on life and even of her time of weeping. See you next time.